Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Revelation. We'll be reading from Revelation chapter 12, which you can find on page 873 in your pew Bibles. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with a torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is God's word. So I realized when I was up here just a moment ago that with Thanksgiving approaching, we have a number of people who've come back either students who are studying out of state or uh, students who've graduated and gone out of state for job or some people who've been working overseas and have come back. So we welcome you back. Uh, Your families will be obviously thrilled to see you, but we're happy enough to see you as well. Now, if you've been reading the media at all, then you would have heard about the case of General Petraeus. And I tend to scan Time Magazine every uh, day just 
And I've been amazed at how many, every day this week they've been trying to comment on it, some new perspective. So I'm not going to beat it again. I'm just going to ask one question about this as a lead into the sermon. You know, What was the guy possibly thinking? You become head of the CIA, which is a business dealing with secrets of people around the world. You're trying to keep your secrets and break their secrets. And the guy is the head of an entire clandestine spy organization. And he thinks he can have an affair and keep it a secret. I mean, apart from any other dimension of it, what kind of madness is at work for a guy in his position to think that he can keep a secret? from everybody else. He knows how many people there are out there trying to break his secret. Or, in a perhaps more controversial example, what could make a country... 73, 83, ...kill more than 50 million of its population within about 50 years? Ever since 1973, the CDC estimates that there's been 50 million abortions. Now, we're not talking about cases of, of rape. Uh, estimated 1% of abortions are due to rape. We're not talking about the life or death of the mother. Only 12%, an estimated 12% of abortions are due to the mother's health at all, and it's not even life and death in all those cases. But 50 million abortions in less than 50 years. Or think back in another kind of similar, uh, you know, think back. Or, or what could make people think that as long as the baby's in the womb, it's okay to kill it, but once it comes out of the womb, you can't even spank it. Now, regardless of corporal punishment, where's the sense in that? Or think back to China during the uh, Great Leap Forward, the Great Leap Backward. An estimated 50 million people died. It could be much higher than that, through starvation, disease, famine, whatever. What could make a ruler do that to his populace? You know, there's a whole lot of other examples we could use. But the basic premise of Scripture is this. There's not only a God who oversees the world. There's also an evil force, the evil side, an evil personality who interferes with God's world. And so we see that in the text today. Join me in Revelation chapter 12, verse uh, 17. It's page 873 in your pew Bible. Here's the premise of Scripture. You know, Scripture actually gives three sources for evil. Uh, we don't ever want to say, the, you know, the devil made me do it. That's kind of silly, and that's kind of facile, and that excuses us. But Scripture gives us three sources of evil. And we're going to look at one of them today. The, the scripture says that, that evil comes from our flesh, our fallen human nature. Evil comes from the environment, the world around us influences us to do evil. But the third source of evil, and the one we're going to look at today, is Satan. 
that there's this personal embodiment of evil force in the world that corrupts us and leads us to do things that are uh, self-harming, that harm ourselves, that harm other people, that harm the world around us. Manifestations of evil. And here's where the premise comes out in verse 17. uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. You know, in their context, they were undergoing persecution. The Roman government and the local provincial authorities were persecuting the church, killing Christians. And it made no real sense. The Christians were no threat. As one of the early church fathers said, in the context of persecution, we still have the document today, and he wrote back and said, why would you kill us? We pray for you. We don't rebel. We cooperate. Why would the government persecute the church? It made no sense. These are peaceable people, cooperative people. The only thing they wouldn't do was worship the emperor as a god. But the emperor himself didn't believe he was a god. It was a political myth. They thought maybe they'll be divinized after death, but it was just a a test of loyalty. But why this test? Require us to do other things. We pray for the emperor, the church father said. Why do governments, totalitarian regimes, often the first reflex is to kill Christians, to kill religious worshipers of any sort? What sense does it make? And Revelation begins with the premise that it actually makes no sense. There's only one way to explain it. And that there is this overwhelmingly powerful spiritual evil, a personality in the world that impels, compels people to do what can be destructive for their social world, their society, what can be destructive for them as family units, what can be destructive for them as individuals. There's no other way to explain it. It is so irrational and so extreme that there's no other way to account for it other than to suppose that there is this powerful, spiritual, malevolent figure. Now, Revelation 12 begins with that premise. And then it it develops a threefold response. Or it talks about this powerful spiritual evil as if it was a three-act play. But this is its premise. Our battle in life and our struggles in life are not merely because we're fallen human beings. We face a spiritual and a cosmic opponent whose sole purposes are evil. Consider the early founding of America as an example. First you have the invasion, the colonization of this continent. Consider the sheer delight with which some of the colonists wiped out the vast majority of the Amerindian population. How can you explain that level of unthinking evil without supposing the existence of Satan? Consider the mentality that allows one segment of a population to enslave a millions of people and to treat them brutally in their poverty and to justify it. More recently, 
Consider American sexual mores. In a day of STDs and AIDS and herpes, what is the sense of profligate sexuality? Consider the fragmentation of our homes where the divorce rate in American culture presses up against 50%. Maybe 42 or higher percent of homes break down in divorce. Consider the drug wars, or the, the, consider the drug culture. Consider the malevolence it takes to invent something like crack and to push something like crack when it's, and the stupidity it takes to, to take something like crack when it creates such havoc in homes and lives. Consider the drug wars in Mexico and the thousands of people killed there. Consider the arms industry in the U.S. You realize we are the largest arms exporter in the world, at least 40% above Russia in arms exports. Consider the, the enthusiasm with which countries invade other countries and kill people. Consider this. Do you realize that we, our country, is the largest provider of arms to the Mexican drug wars? The largest number of those arms that are used in the drug wars by the drug dealers are actually smuggled in from the U.S.? And yet we can't even get either presidential candidate to extend the ban on assault weapons. But let's say you're, you're, you're in favor of having people being able to protect themselves with guns, but assault weapons? Or let's say you're in favor of hunting. People don't use assault weapons for hunting. This is not to protect your home from home invasion. What kind of... You know, we see these manifestations of madness. Now, in the first century... In Revelation, the manifestation of madness was this. The government persecuted the church. But we don't face that. But, but I would suppose, I, I would argue from, if you don't agree with all of these illustrations, but at least some of them, you've got to acknowledge that there, there are forces at work in American culture and in our personal lives that make absolutely no sense unless you hypothesize the existence of some evil force or some evil being which delights purely in creating chaos and evil. And that's where Scripture begins. That's where our text begins today. Revelation has been looking at the, the fate of a suffering church. When the, when the church suffers, when the state persecutes the church, what happens to the church? And, and the whole of Revelation... All 22 chapters reflect on one aspect of this or another. And this chapter, Revelation 12, reflects on this. It is so mindless, so senseless, purely evil, no rationale why the state would persecute the church. So obviously it's the work of a malevolent force behind the state. Satan is inspiring the state to persecute the church. And that's the premise of Revelation 12. And now Revelation 12 develops a three-act play. How does the church survive? What does the church say in the response to this? It's bad enough if we have to fight the police. It's bad enough if we have to fight the army. You know, it's bad enough if, you, if a church has to fight the FBI, the CIA, or the local equivalents. How can a church survive? But what happens if the stakes are even higher? 
If the church is not simply fighting the government, not simply fighting the security bureau, what happens when the church is actually fighting Satan? What hope is there for the church? And, and Revelation 3 recounts a three-act drama in which John is asking, what hope is there for the church in its opposition to the power of Satan? So turn with me again to Revelation chapter 12, page 873, Revelation 12, a three-act drama. Now, this passage illustrates some of the symbolism. If you're not used to coming to church or if you're not used to the book of Revelation, then a lot of this is symbolism. I'll tell you what some of it means. Some of it we don't, can't figure out, but I'll tell you what some of it means. So notice the symbolism, chapter 12, verses 1 to 6, the first act in this drama. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. This is a portrait of the cosmic people of God, the people of God around the world. This is the people of God, the church, whatever, throughout history around the world. This is the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, a crown of 12 stars on her head. This is what God is doing in our world. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. This is the people of God, the church. This is the birth of Christ from the people of God. And then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon, seven heads and ten horns, seven crowns on his head. His tail swept, he was so powerful, his tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky, flung them to the earth. This is some powerful super beast. He flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth so, she might devour her so he might devour her child the moment it was born. He squatted there in front of the woman, ready to kill that child. She gave birth to a son, a male child, Jesus, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Jesus, who will be king of the world. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God. And there she will be taken care of for 1,260 days. Here's the point of the story. This is the first step in the drama. There is this heavenly battle, not Satan against God. It's, it's Satan can't beat God, but Satan against us as the people of God. Satan as a promoter of evil in our world, which afflicts our world and afflicts the church. There's this battle between Satan and the people of God. And, and how can they stand? Because Satan is like this dragon, cosmic dragon, with a tail that sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky and flings them to earth. And the church is like some individual woman versus an enormous, powerful dragon. And how can the church survive? How can the church survive in the face of a persecuting government? How can the church survive in the face of any kind of evil around the world? And here's the first answer. The woman gave birth to a son a male child. He'll rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. How did God snatch Jesus up? You know, this is a story of the birth of Jesus, the incarnation. This is a story of his crucifixion, his, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven, his exaltation. The point of revelation is this. Satan has already lost the, the decisive battle. Satan has already been defeated by God 
by Christ. Think of the cross. Jesus knew it was coming. And either way it turned out, it looked obvious that he had lost. Either he says to God, no, I won't go to the cross. And he denies God and he saves his life. And then the war is truly lost and we can never be saved. Or else he embraces the will of the Father and he courageously marches to the cross and then he is killed. And what benefit is that? He's dead. Now, we know the subsequent part of the story. But if you've read The, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, C.S. Lewis captures it well. People as a whole, likely even Satan himself, did not know how that was going to turn out. But as Jesus hung on the cross in obedience to the Father, and then the Father raised him from the dead and, and, and sent him into heaven, and exalted him there, then the power of Satan was decisively broken. This is the decisive battle, and it's been won. Jesus has won this battle for us. This is what a persecuted church can take heart in. First thing, the battle is over. Even if those Christians die, as in Revelation, they're going to die. They're already, the battle has been won because Jesus won it on the cross. Even if we die, even if our church to ex ceases to exist, John tells his church, even if the gospel is wiped out in Asia Minor, the battle has been fought, the battle has been won. Now, what does that mean for us who don't face persecution from the government? This is not so relevant right now because we don't see this trend now. But 10 years ago, 10 years ago, 1998, I wrote a book. 15 years ago? Anyway. I was a humanities major, so don't... Okay. I wrote a book because I was agitated. And I was agitated because there were some stupid things going on in the church, in missions. There were guys... Frank Peretti wrote a novel that sold... Tens of millions of copies. Frank Peretti wrote a novel about uh, demons and uh, angels fighting in heaven. And the only way the angels could win against the demons was if we prayed. And when we prayed, then the, the, the angels would win. And if we didn't pray, then the angels would lose. And the demons would slice them. And it was just, you know, chop them up and throw them to the earth. And there was this whole heavenly battle. And, and people all got so excited. You know, the New Age stuff. Or this is a Christian version of New Age stuff. If you never read Frank Peretti, don't buy one. I mean, even don't even pay the... One cent you can get them for now on Amazon. But if you remember Frank Peretti, some of you are old enough. But that wasn't the worst part. That was just novels, and people got all excited, and it was nonsense, but it wasn't detrimental. It wasn't particularly harmful. But bad ideas have bad consequences. So there's another guy, a famous missiologist, in public information, so I'll tell you, a guy named Peter Wagner, who was teaching at the most famous school of training for training missionaries. And he was teaching similar stuff that there's some demons over every particular area. And in order to be effective in evangelism and in missions, you've got to defeat those demons. You've got to defeat those demons. And you defeat them by prayer. But you have to do it. You've got to defeat those demons. Or else you're not going to be able to evangelize. And, and I had missionary colleagues that were working in Japan. And you know, you can work in Japan for 20 years and see a couple people come to faith. More Japanese 
come to faith in America every year as graduate students than come to faith in the whole of Japan, even though missionaries have been working there in huge numbers for 50 more years. You get discouraged. You want a key. And Peter Wenger says, okay, here's the key. Pray this way, and then you can break the power of the demons. I had colleagues working in South Thailand. South Thailand's a lot harder because it's a Muslim area. South Thailand's a lot harder than Japan because you can be in South Thailand for 30 years and see your church shrink in half because of the opposition from the culture. And so you get discouraged. So these people were going off for training, missionaries. They've been seminary grads, mature. They were going off for training. And how to defeat these demons through a special kind of prayer. Now, that this, you know, ideas only stay around for a few years. I wasn't even sure I should bother writing a book because I figured by the time I got the book done, the idea would be dead. Well, the book still sells, so I guess the idea is not entirely dead. But here's the point. Maybe the idea is going to come around again. If anyone tells you ever that there is a secret to defeating the demons if you just do this, or if you face the assault from Satan, and here's the key, you know, a 40-item checklist, and if you pray in this way, or you work your way through this checklist, and you repent of these things, then you'll have victory over Satan. There is no key beyond this. Jesus on the cross, in the resurrection, and the exaltation. He has defeated Satan decisively. We'll see as we go through Revelation, Satan is still a fierce opponent. But here's the thing. The decisive battle has been fought. And it has been won. It wasn't fought by us. We can't even defeat a mixed martial arts specialist. How are we going to defeat Satan? The battle was fought. It was fought by Christ. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. This is the first act in the drama. Christ won the battle. The second act of the drama comes in verses 7 through 10. After the child was snatched up to God and his throne, then verse 7, there was war in heaven. Michael, the good archangel, and his angels fought against the dragon, Satan, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. And the dragon lost his place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Let me explain. We use two common terms for the devil or for Satan. Those are our two common terms, right? Devil and Satan. These are not just names. They have meaning. Devil, originally, it comes, it means the, it comes from the Greek and it means deceiver or tempter. So it functions one of the key roles of Satan is to tempt. The name Satan comes from the Hebrew, and it means accuser. Now, you remember in Job chapter 1, some of you are familiar with the story of Job in Job chapter 1. What is Satan doing? In, in fact, in, in Job chapter 1, it's the Satan. What is the Satan doing in Job chapter 1? Appearing before God and saying, look at that guy, Job. 
He's righteous, but that's only because you give him all the good stuff. So Satan in Job 1 is accusing. And that's what the Satan means, the accuser. The tempter and the accuser. And notice how Satan gets us coming and he gets us going. First, his role is to tempt us to sin. Right? Then when we sin, his role is to accuse us before God as sinners. So we're caught in a double bind. And here's the message of this passage. There is this war in heaven after the death of Christ. Because of the death of the resurrection of Christ, there's this war in heaven. And Michael and his angels are fighting against the dragon. The dragon fights back. And the dragon wasn't strong enough. He was hurled down. Why does the author say, now have come salvation? Because Satan is no longer there to accuse us before God. Satan is no longer there to remind God of all the bad things we've done. Instead, in his place is Christ who reminds God of his death for our sin. Because Satan has been cast down, now have come the salvation, the power, the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. This is the second act in the drama. That our accuser, the one who accuses us of sin, has been cast out of heaven, out of the presence of God. Do you see the point? Luther, the founder of the Protestant church, came to faith, came to a faith in Christ because he was plagued by a sense of his own wickedness. He, you could, I, I, probably he had OCD, but he, he was really, I, I'm serious, he, he was really obsessive about his sin. He really obsessed over his sin. And he compulsively confessed this sin, hoping that he could do enough things or repent of, it, repent of it deeply enough, sincerely enough. Have you ever had that experience? You know, you sin and then you repent and you go before... Well, maybe I wasn't sincere enough. That's why I feel guilty. No, 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 no. If we sin and then we turn from that sin, we repent of that sin, we appear before God, why we still feel guilty is because there's an accuser who still accuses us. He can't accuse us before God anymore, but he still accuses us before conscience. And if you, like Luther, are plagued by a, a sense of your ongoing and continuing sin, or no, look, if you're plagued by a sense of your ongoing and continuing sin, then I urge you, stop the sin. You know, the, 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 whole, the rest of it doesn't work unless you stop the sin. And if you need help with it, we've got groups here that, that exist so we can help one another overcome sin. But if you're plagued by a sense of guilt over previous sin that you've committed, what this text is saying is you're free. Satan, the accuser of our brother, before the, our accuser, before the presence of God, day and night, he's been cast down. The first drama, the first act in the drama, the battle between Satan and the church was the death of Christ for our sins and his resurrection to heaven. The second act in this drama is this. Satan has been cast down. We can now have relationship with God and a free conscience before him because Satan is no longer in heaven to accuse us of sin. And here's the third act in the drama, verses 11 to 17. Or verse 12 to 17. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them because Satan's no longer in your midst. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And then he goes on and tells a little bit more about that, elaborates that point. If Satan has been defeated by Christ, if he's cast out of heaven, 
why do we still feel tempted by evil? Why is evil still prevalent in our world? This is the third act of the drama, according to Revelation. It's because Satan has been defeated by Christ. It's because Satan has been cast down from heaven. That's why our lives can be difficult. That's why evil can seem so strong. That's why temptation can seem so prevalent in our lives and in our world. It's because this. Satan has been defeated. He's been cast out of heaven. And now he knows, verse 12, his time is short. The third act in the drama will culminate with Satan being confined in hell. Satan is not the ruler of hell. He's the chief victim of hell. The third act in the drama will see Satan confined, but it hasn't happened yet. And so now he knows it's coming. And he knows his time is short. So he attacks while he can. The point of that is this. This gives us hope. Because not only has been Satan been defeated, uh, not only has been cast out of heaven, but when we face opposition and evil today, what John is telling his church is take heart. Because as you face persecution, maybe as some of you die, here's his promise. The time is short. This is soon going to end. And then we will be left with God, enjoying glory in God's presence. We're going to close with singing an old hymn. When I was talking to Megan as she was preparing the worship set, looking for a hymn that summarizes some of this. I'm looking for a chorus, a modern chorus that summarizes some of this, and, and we don't know of one. So we're going to sing an old hymn to a contemporary tune. Martin Luther captured it this way. Remember, Martin Luther was plagued by a sense of, his oppressive sense of guilt before God. Martin Luther was also plagued by the fact that he may be killed. As he started, the people who did what he did theologically, people who started, tried to start the Christian movement before him, had been killed. And he realized he might be killed through persecution. And he lived with a struggling conscience before God. And he wrote this song. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, a defense never failing. He is our helper amid the flood of mortal ills that prevail. Our still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. The power and craft of our foe are great. He's armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. If we trusted and confided in our own strength, all our efforts would be losing. If we didn't have the right man, Jesus, on our side, the man of God's own choosing, the Lord of hosts his name from age to age the same, he must win the battle. We could say this, he has won the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness is still grim, but we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, his time is approaching. One little word from God shall fell him. And so we sing this song together as a reminder, as worship of God, that Satan has been defeated. He has been, has been cast down. And though he still harms us, he will one day be confined. Let's pray together. Father, in this battle against evil, we thank you that the final victory, the decisive victory, has been won. We ask that you be with us, 
that we persevere in that battle, that we might join you one day and your Son in glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.